Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to the Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, happy hump day to you. Thank you for listening to the Ron Show, whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. It's gotten to be that when the Georgia General Assembly is in session, if you are anyone not of the right-wing ideological variety, you just hold your breath and hope that the worst of the worst doesn't make it out of the Georgia House and Senate and on to the governor's desk for signature. Well, unfortunately, SB 63 is going to be on the governor's desk. Tanya Miller, Representative Tanya Miller, gives us a quick one-minute breakdown on how horrible that bill is. SB 63 is a terrible bill. It's a bill that creates a two-tiered system of justice, uh, creating a system for those who can afford to postpone and those who can't. When people sit incarcerated without being convicted of a crime, presumed innocent, they lose their jobs, they lose their homes, uh, they lose the ability to take care of their children. And so it creates essentially a class of folks who are presumed innocent under the law, but because they don't have money, a judge cannot permit them to be released on bond for what are largely nonviolent uh, crimes of poverty. Democrats are speaking against this bill. We understand how dangerous it is, how dangerous it is to the progress we have made in criminal justice reform. But we are opposing this bill not only because it will balloon our prisons and cost taxpayers so much money, make our jails de facto mental health facilities. Uh, it also criminalizes churches and charities who pull their money together to bail folks out on nonviolent offenses. Elizabeth Welly Greenberg at TheAppeal.org writing yesterday that the Georgia House passed a Republican-backed bill that guts charitable bail funds and will send more people accused of misdemeanors to the state's deadly jails. Oh, yeah, that's right. We do have a folks in jails dying problem, too. Forgot about that. The proposed legislation, Senate Bill 63, mandates cash bail for more than two dozen additional offenses, she writes. The bill effectively eliminates charitable bail funds. We discussed that already. It states that no, quote, individual, corporation, organization, charity, nonprofit corporation, or group may post more than three cash bonds per year. A person who violates the ban would be charged with a misdemeanor themselves. Greenberg continues, the bill was co-sponsored by multiple high-ranking state Republicans, panderers, including Senate Majority Whip Randy Robertson of Catala, Georgia, y'all remember him, and Majority Leader Steve Gooch. The bill passed by a vote of 95 to 67. You heard Representative Tanya Miller talking about the impact on low-income and unhoused people accused of misdemeanors. You heard about, well, not just low income, but just working class folks who can't afford to miss a day of work, but also wish to flex their First Amendment rights. It mandates cash bail for anyone accused of even forgery, just accused. Unlawful assembly, that's another charge that they usually levy against peaceful protesters, and even possession of marijuana. In 2024, we are now going to require cash bail for those who possess marijuana. 
Wally Greenberg at theappeal.org writes, judges would also be required to set bail for accusations typically related to poverty, such as trespassing or theft by taking, provided that it is the person's second or subsequent offense. I'm going to let you listen to some of the representatives who spoke about this on the floor yesterday before the vote. We'll start with uh, Representative Derek Jackson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Colleagues, I rise to oppose Senate Bill 63. While I was reading this 17-page bill, I kept asking the question, what is it that Senate Bill 63 is trying to fix? But then it was crystallized when the sponsor was asked, what would happen when individuals are forced to remain in custody, pending trial, because they are too poor to afford a bond? The sponsor said, I quote, community groups could put money together. That's interesting, because there's an irony here, because the text of this bill says it would be criminalized. I invite you to go to section four, line number 192. No more than three cash bonds may be posted per year by any individual, corporation, organization, charity, nonprofit corporation, or group in any jurisdiction. That sounds like to me that we can possibly criminalize churches who are raised money to get their member out of jail. On line number 194, every individual corporation, organization, charity, nonprofit corporation, and here's the other key point, colleagues, listen clearly. Any person or entity who violates any part of this paragraph will be guilty of a misdemeanor. This bill will force judges to set bail even in cases where defendants would otherwise would have been released. Some of us in here have been released. Elected officials, off-duty law enforcement, lawyers, military veterans, because they realize a day in jail could cost them their job. With that, I yield the well. The chairman has yielded the will. Representative Miller, you have up to seven minutes. Good afternoon, colleagues. I rise today again to speak in opposition to Senate Bill 63, a bill that, if enacted, would undermine the historic bipartisan justice, criminal justice reform efforts led by former Governor Nathan Deal and place in jeopardy Georgia's role as a national leader in evidence-based criminal justice reform measures that both help reduce the burgeoning cost of our criminal justice system and make our neighborhoods safer. It serves as a reminder that between 2011 and 2018, together, Republicans and Democrats implemented an array of criminal justice measures, including accountability courts and, yes, cash bail reforms. We already did this, y'all. These reforms were designed to contribute to public safety by helping people turn their lives around and not recidivate so that they can become contributing members to their communities and not simply more experienced criminals. In 2018, led by Governor Deal, the Georgia legislature unanimously, unanimously passed reforms that trusted judges to release people accused of misdemeanor and other 
low-level offenses without posting cash bond, if it's appropriate, if it's appropriate. When someone in his own party told Governor Deal that this was not a, quote, Republican issue, he said, perhaps it's not, but it's the right thing to do, and he was right. Today, it is my hope that this chamber will also do the right thing and reject Senate Bill 63. Now, the Council on Criminal Justice Reform from 2017 to 2018, led by Chief Justice Boggs, reviewed the issues surrounding pretrial justice in Georgia. With these goals in mind, maximize public safety, minimize pretrial appearances, and maximize personal liberties. I submit to you that these three standards sought to guide us in our actions, and they should guide us in our actions today as well. The council conducted an extensive analysis of the issue of pretrial detention and cash bail, including a legal review of legislative reforms, pending litigation around the country, as well as a review of current practices in Georgia. Available articles, case law and research, they heard from a wide range of groups, including the Southern Center for Human Rights, the Georgia Association of Professional Bondsmen, Georgia Municipal Association, and the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police. They did their homework. And before we cast their work aside, we should be poised to do ours as well. Just five short years ago, this committee was diligent and thorough in their work, noting that when it comes to meaningful criminal justice reform, the issues of pretrial justice, pretrial justice, are of paramount importance. For good reason. Pretrial detention is expensive, it can be ineffective, and it can exacerbate Georgia's two-tier criminal justice system. Let's talk about the research and the data. First, from a public safety perspective, pretrial incarceration does not make us safer. This is a data. In fact, more time, excuse me, in fact, the more time an accused person, by the way, not a convicted person, right. an accused person who has the presumption of innocence, the more time that they spend in pretrial detention, the more likely they are to reoffend. Research shows that spending more than seven days in pretrial detention increases the probability of a new arrest and a new arrest for a violent crime. One Kentucky study evaluating 150,000 defendants found that people held in jail for just two to three days after arrest were 39% more likely to be arrested on a new charge while the first charge was pending, two to three days. And that's in a criminal justice report. That is what informed our criminal justice reform in 2018. Second, the findings based on a year of study of evidence and data requiring cash bail before an initial court proceeding, which this bill, which this bill does, can result in extended detention for those who simply can't afford it. We've talked about the criminalization of poverty. This bill would require incarceration for many offenses that once the person is fully vetted through due process, if they are convicted, they would not even receive incarceration for. Right. We're asked to do this based on what? There is no evidence that expanding the application of past bail and substituting the judgment of lawmakers without informed evidence, without a thorough vetting, will make us safer. 
My colleagues, I could talk longer. I thank the speaker for allowing me this time. I ask if you oppose Senate Bill 63 and work with us together to, in a bipartisan fashion, formulate evidence-based measures and procedures that will make us all safer. And lastly, what is most scary about this bill is the criminalization of churches mm. and religious institutions mm -hmm. that have historically been on the front lines of social justice and civil rights justice for black and brown people in this country. Bingo. I do not believe that it is appropriate today or any day to tell parishioners and people of faith who pool their money together, who want to bail mothers out on Mother's Day, who want to bail fathers out on Father's Day, who want to bail children out on Christmas Eve, that this body believes that they should be charged as criminals unless they go through the process of becoming bail bondsmen. And if I were you, I would carefully look at that subsection because who is not included in that are bail bondsmen. Excuse me, excluded from that are bail bondsmen. Reread it. Why wouldn't a bail bondsman also not be allowed to bail out more than three people? If you look at the language, that's what we do as legislators. Perhaps this is a result of the hasty, private, not public committee conference procedure that yielded that bail front provision. I submit to you, send back Senate Bill 63. Now, come on, Representative Tanya Miller. You're not suggesting that Senator Randy Robertson of Catala would draft a, a bill thin on intelligence and data, would you? No, not, not Randy Robertson. By the way, an unintended consequence that just occurred to me while she was speaking, I will share that for you when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. Last break, we were talking about Senate Bill 63, which has passed both chambers of the Georgia General Assembly and awaits Governor Brian Kemp's signature, and he's expected to sign it because, of course, this bill increases cash bail on several misdemeanors that would lead to potential arrests for even simple possession of marijuana, peaceful assembly, trespassing, forgery. A lot of this on the throes of the Cop City movement over the last couple of years that has seen organizations like the Atlanta Solidarity Fund collect money, fundraise for bail funds for protesters who get arrested. Susan Welly Greenberg at TheAppeal.org wrote at length about this legislation and some of the unintended consequences. One of them we already touched on just a little bit. How deadly Georgia's jails are. She writes, several of Georgia's jails have attracted national attention and condemnation. Last summer, the U.S. Department of Justice opened an investigation into the Fulton County Jail after LaShawn Thompson was found inside a squalid cell covered in lice and feces. At the time of his death, most people held in Thompson's unit, which housed individuals with mental illness, were unable to care for themselves and were so malnourished that they developed a wasting syndrome typically found for people with advanced stage cancer. Last week, Senators John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, along with Representative DeCama Williams, asked the DOJ to prioritize its investigation into the jail, noting that at least seven people had died since the investigation began. In 2023, 10 people in the sheriff's custody died. 15 people died the previous year. 
Serious concerns have also been raised about Georgia's Clayton County Jail. Last year, detainees told the appeal that they feared for their lives, were forced to live in squalor, had limited access to toilets, and that some people had to sleep on the floor. In September, Ossoff, citing the appeals reporting, requested a federal investigation into that jail. Senator Ossoff writing, There appears to be a pattern in practice of civil rights violations in this jail, speaking of the Clayton County Jail, that result in preventable deaths and jeopardize public trust. He later added that reports, quote, of medical neglect at the facility shock the conscience. Again, I'm reading from Susan Welly Greenberg's piece in the appeal at theappeal.org. I'll include it in today's show notes at ronshowetl.com. In Ossoff's letter, he named several detainees who had died, including 32-year-old Alan Wilson, who died of testicular cancer complicated by medical neglect, according to the Clayton County Medical Examiner's Office. The office concluded that the unhygienic living conditions at the jail malnourishment during his detention and physical abuse perpetrated by both guards and detainees also contributed to his death. As the appeal previously reported, Willison had repeatedly begged for help for almost two months. Willison had been held on a third-degree forgery charge, a forgery charge, another charge that will become bail mandatory under the new bill. He wrote, a November 23, 2022 note, need to go to the hospital, request for medical care, which the appeal obtained. He wrote, I have major pain and something wrong with private parts. Susan Welly Greenberg writes, he was not diagnosed with cancer until January 19th, 2023. He wrote that note, November 23, 2022. He died a week later in late January 2023. But as I was listening to Representative Tanya Miller speaking on the House floor yesterday about all the unintended consequences of this bill, another one came to my mind, and I'm not sure I really they went into session for two and a half hours yesterday and get to watch the entire session. I'm not sure if anybody brought this up. What if it also empowers law enforcement on the ground, on the streets, to choose not to arrest people for these crimes, or maybe even more serious crimes, because there's nowhere to put said perpetrator, because SB 63 once passed, puts more people in jails and prisons that throughout the state are already brimming at the seams, overflowing in the case of Fulton County's jail. Yeah, what if now all of a sudden law enforcement Cop on the beat has to decide if it's worth following through on the paperwork, never mind the bringing them in, bringing them down for questioning, locking them up part, because where are you going to put them? As you heard Representative Miller state before SB 63, which is still not signed into law by the governor just yet, you had judicial discretion when it came to cash bail. Now, conceivably, you could be putting that decision in the hands of a police officer because they are the first line of decision. Let's be honest. In our judicial system, they can thumbs up, thumbs down as to whether or not to follow through on something. 
It could be, I don't know, as simple as a domestic violence wellness check, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that a cop would be not wise enough to sense a domestic violence issue and perhaps take the alleged offender downtown for a night to cool off. But you're literally sort of putting that power in the officer's hands when you fill the jail instead with third-degree forgery, simple possession of marijuana, a protester, and the unhoused sleeping where they weren't allowed to sleep and arrested for trespassing. And if you don't think decisions like that have to be made on the fly, on the beat, ask anyone you know who has ever served in law enforcement. It happens more often than you think. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Take The Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So it's, I think, an understatement to say that the last 30 days or so have not been kind to Fulton District Attorney Fonnie Willis. She, of the uh, recently revealed relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade, a relationship that she acknowledged last week after about three or four weeks of the rest of us hand-wringing about Please tell me it's not true. Please. Oh, my God, it's true. But she paid for every other trip, ticket, or something like that. And on February 15th, she'll get the opportunity, it would appear, to prove that. Well, she does have folks coming to her defense, and some of them unexpected. Tamar Hollerman at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution yesterday reporting that Fonnie Willis does not have any conflicts that warrant her disqualification from the Fulton County election interference case. At least that's according to a group of 17 ethics experts, former prosecutors, and defense attorneys. And to be fair, we have said that any of the allegations being brought before the court of public opinion about she and Nathan Wade's relationship should have no bearing on the cases of the Trump co-defendant or Trump himself. Let's go back to the story here. The coalition, which includes former Georgia-based federal prosecutor Amy Lee Copeland, one-time DeKalb DA J. Tom Morgan, and Richard Painter, the top White House ethics lawyer during the George W. Bush administration. Here we go, bipartisanship, y'all. Filed a friend-of-the-court brief late Monday laying out why Fulton Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee should dismiss multiple court motions alleging Willis acted improperly. They write, Disqualifying conflicts occur when a prosecutor's previous representation of a defendant gives the prosecutor forbidden access to confidential information about the defendant or a conflict otherwise directly impacts fairness and due process owed a defendant. That kind of conflict is not an issue here. They write, We've said that. Five defendants in recent weeks, Tamar Hollerman writes, led by former Donald Trump campaign official Michael Roman, have argued that Willis has an untenable conflict of interest created by a previously undisclosed romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the outside attorney she hired to spearhead the racketeering probe. Trump, 
and 14 other defendants currently remain in the case. Willis acknowledged the personal relationship Hollerman writes with Wade in a court filing last week, but contended that she did not improperly benefit financially. She urged McAfee to cancel a previously announced evidentiary hearing scheduled for February 15th. Hollerman writes the ethics experts, who said they have no independent knowledge of Willis and Wade's personal relationship, backed up the DA, arguing that even if all of the defendant's allegations were true, they, quote, do not even come close do not even come close to mandating her removal because they're irrelevant to the underlying case. I feel smart because I've been saying this for a while now. Hair toss. They said judges typically view motions for disqualification skeptically, given the significant cost to taxpayers and the delays that typically result as new prosecutions try to get up to speed. Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me that this is another purposeful delay tactic? You don't say. Back to the piece. Prosecutors, they said, are typically, quote, trusted to fulfill their duties despite competing personal interests. They added that the defendants have similarly not provided adequate evidence to merit their other significant ask. That the criminal charges against them be dropped. They write, defendants have not shown that their constitutional rights were violated or that these proceedings were rendered fundamentally unfair due to any relationship between D.A. Willis and Wade. Nor can defendants establish that they were actually prejudiced so as to warrant this relief. I feel so smart. I've been saying this. I should, should I just go to law school? It's expensive. Long time. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. How do I pay the bills while I do that? But maybe. I mean, I did see all nine seasons of Suits. Back to Hollerman's piece, the former officials also defended Willis against criticism of her remarks last month at a historic black church in Atlanta. I probably deviate from them on this, but attorneys for Trump and others said Willis' suggestion that her critics were playing the, quote, race card represented a calculated effort to foment social bias into the case that could prejudice a jury. I kind of see their point, but let's see what these experts say. The former prosecutors and ethics experts said Willis' remarks are not disqualifying because they were not directed at a particular defendant. Oh. Nor were they focused on the alleged guilt of any defendant or the merits of the case. They said the jury selection ch- uh, phase of the case was the most appropriate place to address whether Willis' comments might have impacted the jury pool. Even though they said there's nothing to merit disqualification, they argued that if McAfee disagrees, Willis should be allowed to resolve the conflict. By reimbursing Wade for any shared expenses, and maybe she did, she's claiming she already did, or changing his role in the case so the prosecution can keep advancing in a timely manner. I'll share that piece in the show notes at ronshowatl.com, as I tend to do. Back to the Georgia General Assembly, where inexplicably, like seriously, there's no explanation for this. The Georgia Senate yesterday passed a bill to remove the sales tax for guns, ammunition, and other gun accessories during the first week of hunting season (laughs) in the month of October. I mean, if this isn't the most panderous bullshit ever, I I don't understand. It's Senate Bill 344, approved uh, by a 30-22 party-line vote, of course, Republicans supporting the measure, 
Uh, Senator Jason Estevez on the floor yesterday speaking to this. Thank you, Mr. President. I rise in opposition to SB 344. A wise man once said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. I'll amend that a little bit by saying, don't tell me what you value. Show me your tax exemption bill and I'll tell you what you value. Friends, I keep hearing that many of us in this chamber value children and families. And in some states, you see tax exemption bills for groceries. We don't. In other places, you see tax exemptions for feminine products. We don't. Yep. In other places, you see tax exemption holidays, similar to what's being proposed here, for school supplies to help students and teachers. We don't do that either. Yep. Because instead of looking out for children and families, we are looking out for gun manufacturers. That, my friends, is what this bill is telling us that y'all value. The sales tax holiday that SB 344 creates for gun purchases will make Georgia's gun violence worse. And it's not gun violence that's only happening in Metro Atlanta or only happening in Democratic districts. It's violence, it's suicide that has happened all across this state in every single one of our districts. Gun violence in Georgia has increased over 25% this last decade, with gun-related murders up 47% and gun-related suicides up 16%. Gun death and injuries have cost Georgians $12 billion a year with taxpayers paying $600 million of that bill. And what y'all are asking Georgia taxpayers to do today is to add another $5 million to their tax burden. Why? Because y'all want to make a political point. You want to pander yep. to the politics that at the end of the day do not help everyday Georgians. Now, this might surprise you. I own a handgun, purchased it, paid sales tax on it, Senator from the 31st. I also have gone hunting. I've done skeet shooting. Love it. Have a great time doing it. Encourage other folks to do it. We could have improved this legislation by adding simple language that would have restricted the tax holiday to certain gun purchases. I propose an amendment in committee that would have allowed the sales tax holiday to only apply to purchases related to hunting. Hunting. Which if you listen to the sponsor's speech, you would have thought it would have been a no-brainer. Right. But the majority voted this amendment down. Why? Because this bill is not about hunting. Nope. 
It's about politics. Yep. While I respect Georgia's gun hunting culture, we cannot support, and I certainly will not support, legislation that will flood our streets with more guns. Colleagues, I encourage you and I urge you to vote no against this bill. Not because it's a gun sales tax holiday for hunting, but because ultimately what this is intended to do is to score political points at the expense of Georgia's families. Mm -hmm. And I want to say one final thing. We have the opportunity in the state to have meaningful legislation that will protect families, legislation that encourages responsible gun ownership. There's legislation being considered that would actually do that, would be an exemption for, for sales from sales tax, for gun safes, for, for trigger locks. This bill covers some of those things, but goes way beyond that and includes high-powered magazines, barrel stocks, and items that have shown up time and time again in shootings, not only related to murder in our communities, but at school sites across this country. We want to see legislation, and we have been, in, we have been advocating for legislation that promotes for, uh, responsible gun ownership for many years now. Y'all have refused to act on it. Mm -hmm. So what I encourage you to do here today is to vote no on SB uh, 344 and to actually move forward with legislation that will keep our children and our families safe. Again, don't tell me what you value. Show me in this budget. Show me with your tax exemption bills. Colleagues, this does the complete opposite of putting our, fo our focus on families and our children. I yield the well. And by the way, to, uh, on that note, uh, Senator K. Kirkpatrick, a Republican from Marietta, look at me, hat tip, has a bill she's sponsoring called uh, it's Senate Bill 340, which would waive the sales tax on gun safes and gun safety accessories year-round. Uh, she says that it would cost the state about $1.6 million in tax revenue, bipartisan support for that. Uh, over in the House, Representative Mark Newton, a Republican from Augusta, has House Bill 971, which would provide tax credits of up to $300 per person for those who purchase a gun safe or enroll in an in-person course on safety, uh, safely handling a firearm. HB 971 had bipartisan support. They haven't been prioritized the way SB 344 has been. The sales tax holiday associated with hunting, but not specifically for guns used for hunting. Senator Jason Aceves, eloquent with the floor speech there, he also tweets, exempting handguns and ammo from taxes instead of baby diapers, feminine products, and school supplies shows you where their priorities are in this state, but that's not surprising. Georgia Republicans have consistently put guns ahead of children and families for many years now. Here, here. To put it simply, 
the GOP Georgia Senate has put pandering over pampering. Hey, real quick, before we go to break, those of you who listen weekday mornings, 9 to 10 on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. Yesterday was just the second day in that new time slot. The show re-airs if you're listening 5 to 6 p.m. as you have for 15 months. Thank you so much for that dedication and loyalty. I appreciate that. The show airs first now, 9 to 10 a.m. on America One Radio, and then replays 5 to 6 p.m. If you listened yesterday to the 9 to 10 o'clock show, you heard a totally different show, 5 to 6 p.m., or you could have, I'm saying, because the Trump immunity news dropped and we adjusted on the fly and put out new subsections of the show that wound up on the podcast. So if you listen to 9 to 10 a.m. and something major happens news-wise, check out the podcast at ronshowetl.com or wherever you podcast because the show could be completely different covering those topics as well. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com or wherever you podcast. All right, we're in the home stretch. Final segment of The Ron Show for Wednesday. I'm happy to report that yesterday was a really bad day for Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> She has, uh, of course, been laser... Jewish laser? Space laser? Focused on impeachment. If not Joe Biden, because that case has gone rather quiet. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Hmm. Wonder why. Uh, Could it be because they just have nothing to really base an impeachment proceeding on? So they have moved on, as Representative Jamie Raskin says, to... Another little trinket. Listen to him on the floor yesterday. Man, he was just fire. Gentleman from Maryland is recognized. Thank you, Madam Speaker, Mr. Chairman. We're here because the madcap wild goose chase to impeach Joe Biden has produced no wild geese. Even Fox News is lampooning the fact that their own expert witnesses repeatedly say President Biden did nothing wrong and there are no grounds for impeachment. More than a dozen GOP members in Biden majority districts don't want to go anywhere near that fantasy production. So the Trump-Putin mega faction headed up by the distinguished gentlelady from Georgia has been given this worthless trinket of a consolation prize, the opportunity to bring a slapstick impeachment drive against a cabinet member of unimpeachable integrity who has obviously committed no treason, no bribery, no high crimes, no misdemeanors, nothing indictable or even indictable, if you prefer. Did someone mispronounce indictable? I wouldn't be shocked by that. I'm just wondering. Uh, Okay, Jamie continues. What makes this farce a tragedy is that Secretary Mayorkas and the U.S. Senate have been working for months to achieve precisely the immigration and border compromise the GOP has been demanding. And miraculously, they got to a bipartisan immigration agreement for billions of dollars more in border patrol officers, immigration judges, fentanyl detection machines, a far tougher border. It was good enough for Senator Mitch McConnell Mm. and dozens of GOP senators, and it was good enough for the Wall Street Journal, Mm. but the House megas would not take yes for an answer. Why? Because Donald Trump doesn't want a border solution. He wants a border problem, nothing else to run on. And Vladimir Putin certainly doesn't want $60 billion going to the heroic people of Ukraine defying his filthy imperialist invasion all over the world. Democracy and freedom are under siege today, and all our colleagues can think to do is to sell out our democratic allies and sell out the cause of human rights and then impeach a cabinet secretary working diligently to solve the immigration problem that they claim to care about. 
I yield back. Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz making a fantastic point, wondering where the MAGAs were when they wanted to impeach actually faulty cabinet members back when Trump was president. Quite frankly, it's President Trump himself that says, quite frankly, his hiring procedures were quite terrible. John Bolton, (laughs) who worked in the Trump administration, Trump called him a wacko and a sick puppy. Jeff Sessions, who was hired by Donald Trump, was called mentally unqualified. John Kelly, who was hired by Donald Trump, he said, Trump said he was way over his head. Rex Tillerson, who was hired by Donald Trump, he was dumb as a rock. But no impeachment for any of those bad hires who were just bad at their jobs. Incidentally, it was Texas Democrat Congressman Representative Al Green who left the hospital early. I'm sorry, I should just say briefly, to cast the crucial vote against the impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary. BBC reporting Al Green surprised the House floor by entering the chamber, being pushed on a wheelchair and wearing hospital scrubs. The 76-year-old's trip from the emergency room where he was having abdominal surgery was decisive. House Republicans ultimately failed to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas with the final tally at 216 to 214. They blame Mayorkas for a surge in illegal immigration at the U.S. frontier, which is at record levels. Marjorie Taylor Greene, not to be confused, or I'm sorry, unrelated to Congressman Al Greene, complaining about the math mathing. Ugh, math again with a liberal bias. Damn it all. The Democrats hid one of these votes that they had, so it wasn't something that people would see. Is that something that Republicans... I'm I'm glad I'm glad you asked that because um, well we can basically look like look at this as a game unfortunately and their strategy and they hid one of their members uh, waiting to the last minute uh, watching to see our votes um, trying to throw us off on the numbers that we had versus the numbers they had so yeah that was a strategy at play tonight <laughs> the math ah! and then y'all get this Matt Gates. That Matt Gates from Florida, the guy who got Kevin McCarthy booted from the House Speakership. <laughs> he goes on, is this Newsmax? He goes on cable television to bemoan the fact that Kevin McCarthy and George Santos weren't there to make the numbers a little bit easier for this to pass. I wondered, like, wouldn't it have been nice to still have Kevin McCarthy in the House of Representatives? Never thought you'd hear me say that. But Kevin McCarthy, after being dislodged as speaker, took his marbles and went home. He would have been a reliable vote for impeachment. But if he wasn't speaker, he wasn't willing to stick around. And I think that the the errant expulsion of Santos and the abject selfishness of Kevin McCarthy contributed to this result as much as the three Republican members who, who voted no sincerely. <laughs> So it's everybody's fault but Matt Gates, y'all. Everybody's fault. Oh, and the errant expulsion of George Santos? Wow. Also yesterday on the House floor, every once in a while a Republican says something that you go, you know, he's absolutely right. Chip Roy from Texas. Listen to this, Jim. Speaking about immigration here. No, we're not going to just pass the buck and say that, oh, any president could walk in and secure the border. I saw former President Trump make that allegation earlier today on one of his... Social media post. All the president has to do is declare the borders closed and it's closed. Well, with all due respect, that didn't happen in 2017, 18, 19, and 20. There were millions of people who came into the United States during those four years. Uh, yeah, so maybe we should instead impeach the House Speaker Mike Johnson, who won't allow 
the Senate bill come to a floor vote so that we can get some immigration policy passed. This is like the GOP couldn't get this passed when they had the House, the Senate, and the White House under Trump, and here they have a golden opportunity, and they're choosing to punt on it because Donald Trump needs campaign fodder. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Back here tomorrow, 9 to 10 a.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. The replay, 5 to 6 p.m. weekdays on those same devices. And the podcast, wherever you podcast. Show notes at RonShowATL.com. See you guys tomorrow. Have a good one.